What do you do when you have a loved one who struggles with mental health or addiction issues? What I can recommend to you is you give us a call at Cash Centers. We're in network with most insurance providers. We're also out of network with a bunch of insurance providers. And even if your loved one or you is not appropriate for us, we will make a recommendation in your local city or hometown with the extensive resources that we have. So go to castcenters.com. That's C-A-S-T centers.com. Check us out, give us a call, and we'll help you find the right resources. We're back, always evolving, with Dr. Romani Dervasala. You got close. Romani. Oh, my gosh. You got so close. I, you know, it is, people psych themselves out. Are you good with names? I am good-ish. You know, I'm not, I'm not great at remembering them. I'm so mindful of pronouncing them because of the, my name. So yeah, yeah. but I'm still, I, I don't, I often don't get them right. People right get it wrong day. a lot. Most of the time. Did it ever bother you? It, uh, it you know what? It doesn't, you know, like it doesn't. It, does, I'm like, it does, it doesn't. I think that, you know, listen, I, I always believe in giving people grace because they're, they're not, you know, it's not like, don't think that someone's doing it intentionally, though there yeah. have been people who have done it intentionally to mess with me that I didn't like. And then when I was a kid, actually, because I'm, you know, I'm older, and so it's a different time in this country, and people would often push me to change my name. And I'm like, okay, holy oppressive colonizer, but yeah, no, I'm not doing that. And even as a kid, for what a... I don't want to say weak kid, but t scared kid I was. There were some things I wouldn't budge on. I'm like, no, this is my name. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I wasn't trying to mess with you when no, I, I know had you sent I you know to, you sent, or when I sent you to my house instead of coming <laughs> here. Cast. You're over to my <laughs> Dr. Melpole, the last episode, I think I did the same thing to him. I told you, but it was pouring rain and I don't know why my brain can't. You know, it's just I'm so used to punching in my home address. So, well, I um, think that also what had happened too was that I had thought to myself, it'd been some time since we'd scheduled this. Yeah. So, when you sent me this new address, I'm like, oh, he just must have moved a spot. And then I thought, oh, I'm glad I asked because I had your original address in there. Well, I Correct. met you at David Kessler's mm -hmm. birthday party. You did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Who is the legend in grief. Yes, he is the legend in grief. Yes. And, and I recognized you because I'd seen a lot of your videos. Mm -hmm. Some of it was just out of curiosity. I would watch your videos on YouTube. And then at other times, it was because I was in a relationship hmm. and I was trying to sort out yeah. what was real or not real. Yeah. Yeah. And tell me, how did you end up, uh, you're a clinical psychologist, mm -hmm. and you ended up finding a niche which became sort of narcissistic personality disorder mm -hmm. and the traits surrounding it. So where I got, it's, it's early in my career, you know, back in early 2000s, I was doing research that did look at narcissism and specifically how narcissism affected health, substance use, health issues. I, I was working, uh, I was studying HIV at the time, mm. you know, um, engaging with medical services, engaging in other risky behaviors. That was sort of where I began a lot of this interest. Clinically, I'd already been, I think, interested in it, but also scared by it. Like, these are not easy clients to deal with. But what's interesting for me, the evolution, real interesting evolution of my career was, I did so much academic work to understand what narcissism was, but it was my entire focus, my heart, my passion, is working with the people who are 
attempting to heal from these relationships, the people in the relationships with the narcissistic people. Mm. That's my forte, that's my expertise, that's my niche, and that's my focus. But to do that, you had to understand the narcissism. Right, and I imagine, so there's, there's someone who's in a relationship who's kind of a victim to someone who is a narcissist. Mm -hmm. And then there's probably a different category of people that maybe they were part of the problem and it wasn't that they were narcissistic. And, mm -hmm. you know, because sometimes mm -hmm. humans, some people look within mm -hmm. and go, mm -hmm. okay, which part of this is me? Which part mm -hmm. of this was them? Mm -hmm. Some people go, it's all them, right? Mm -hmm. And you saying, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's, I think sometimes it's hard to know what the reality is. Mm -hmm. And so how do you determine if you have a boss who's a narcissist, mm -hmm. if you are in a relationship with a narcissist, mm -hmm. and I know there's varying degrees sure. in how it shows yeah. up, but how do you know? So, you know, it is, I think that the, it's such a, it's such an interesting, tricky space, right? Cause some people will say to me, I just need to know definitively that they're a narcissistic person and then I can make decisions. I said, well, it's it, in a sense, hammering down whether or not someone's narcissistic is looking at a series of key sorts of patterns, you mm. know, their, their empathy, the consistency of their empathy, their entitlement, their grandiosity, arrogance, invalidation, manipulation, blame shifting, mm, uh, need for control, gaslighting, rage, sensitivity, thin skinned quality. And then you, know, all, you, you, you those are the things you're looking for, right? right? But we're looking for consistency. I think the mistake people make, and I see this happen on social media all the time, you'll have the person get up there and say, I know my boyfriend's a narcissist, he cheated on me. I don't wanna say, slow down sister, let's break this down. Tell me, you mean it could? It, it, it's conceivable that if she said this is like the seventh time he's done this, and we've talked about it, and he promised he'd never do it again, and he also doesn't talk to me nicely, and I don't know why I'm saying this. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I've been pretty clear. That's what we're dealing with. This is somebody who says, you know, actually, we had a great, we have a good relationship. I thought we have a good relationship. It was healthy, and I felt safe and respected. And then he goes to this bachelor party, and then he comes home and he confesses, like I drank too much, and then I did this thing, and I am so ashamed, and I wanted you right by you. I'm like, that's not a narcissist. Careless, immature, foolish, sure. Narcissistic, probably not. Right. If narcissism and any in um, maladaptive personality style is about consistency. This is who this person is more often than not. Now, the tricky bit with narcissism is when they're doing well, like when they're what we call well-supplied, work's going well, they're getting validation, um, things in their life are going the way they want, yeah. they may actually seem like a really, really well put together person. But even on those best days, if one thing goes wrong to get them upset, they don't get the parking spot they want, they don't, um, they don't get whooshed into the restaurant the way they want, whatever yeah. it is, you're gonna start seeing that, you know, that crust crumbles pretty quickly with them. Yeah, I found, uh, so my actually Sophia, uh, who's doing the audio had met. My ex had really, really encouraged me to redesign the space here, the mm -hmm, offices. You're mm -hmm, like, oh, mm -hmm. it's beautiful here. And I started the renovation because he was so excited to help me. And yeah, I kept saying, yeah. Ah, I don't know, it seems early in the relationship. And he said, no, I insist, I want to, mm -hmm. I want to. And he was on three group chats and had like kind of the power of, mm -hmm. and it's a six figure redesign. I didn't even really know if I wanted to redesign. Right. It wasn't that important to me. Right. And um, after we had broken up, he insisted on continuing to do it. And I felt like, 
God, this just feels so weird. I went to my therapist to talk about it. So I was like, and finally I got to a place, okay, he started the design, he can finish the design. Uh-huh. As soon as I said, okay, he goes, I can't do that, Mike. We're exes. And the other thing is when I visited him in Brazil, we took all these photos and there was one photo in particular. He looked amazing. I looked terrible. You know, like when you take a photo oh, and yeah. you're like, I know it's that. almost laughable. I know that, yeah. He said to me, we were at a restaurant and he said, he said afterwards when I was home, can you text me that image mm-hmm. of the two of us? And I said, do you mean the image where you look great and I look like crap? He goes, yeah. He goes, I'm like, why do you want that image? He goes, well, I was going to send it to my mom. And I said, You're, uh, and I said, yeah, but I look terrible. He goes, don't worry, I'll cut you out of the image. And I just couldn't, be- like, I felt crazy. And I had a consistent amount of those, like. That's my point. Like, it's the consistent amount. I felt mm-hmm. crazy moments yeah. where I'm like, wait, he can't, is that a dig at me? Like, he's such a smart guy. He's successful. Mm-hmm. He's charming. Uh, why? Does he know he's being a dick? Like, no, no. I mean, no, no. I think that sometimes, Mike, you'll see a narcissistic person who is like you said, do they know they're being a dick? They do and they don't. Here's what I mean by this is because they're not dumb. They're not cut off from the world. They're very successful in the world. In fact, right. you said successful, charming, totally. smart. They, they, I mean, they're, when I, you tell me you're meeting the head of something, I'm like, okay, odds on favorite is that this person's narcissistic. They're often overrepresented in leadership, all of that, right? But the knowing it isn't enough to stop them. That's where the arrogance and the, the incapacity to think about how they affect other people. And they might even say, okay, so I'm a dick. I've got the goods to back it up. So the the arrogance and the the grandiosity will kind of come up. So for them in those times, it's not the, it's not shameful, right? So in other words, if you did the same thing to him, Mike, Mike, I'm going to guess, let's say there was a picture, you look fantastic, you look terrible. And you said, I'm just going to cut you out of this picture and give it to my mom. He would have Lost, lost it. it and lost i wouldn't it. i would feel so bad you wouldn't do it no, but I, you know but you know how he would react my point it. is it's very hypocritical very. so they hold people to a standard they themselves cannot follow and that's why people in these relationships feel like they're losing their minds i'll say i'll give them all these examples and i'll say i'll tell them you do realize that if you did this and the and then the narcissistic person will either be it's as though they're not listening to them right and or treat the treat the other person as though they're being petty Right. You know, it's because there's so many different kinds. I mean, I, I, I've heard there's even more. There's covert narcissists. There's mm-hmm. grandiose. Nar- mm-hmm. Like the, the, the profile of the person is varying so much. Do you mm-hmm. think it's going to become like a different type of diagnosis just because it's so varied? When, when we're talking about something like narcissism itself, I always caution people. What we're talking about is not diagnostic, right? So we have narcissistic personality, right? There's all kinds of personalities. There's agreeable personalities. There's extroverted personalities. There's highly neurotic personalities, all these personalities, right? right? And that's a style and it's stylistic and it may not be diagnostic. It may not be resulting in the kind of impairments that we require something to reach to get to a diagnostic level. And ultimately they need to be sitting across from a diagnostician, a person who's trained and licensed to do that, right? So I often say like, let's leave this whole diagnosis part out of the conversation, right? And let's just make it about the personality. Mm -hmm. 
And I personally, between you and I, if I ran the world, I'd get rid of this diagnosis altogether mm. because it it doesn't really move the needle on treatment to make it about a diagnosis. We could view it as being on a continuum. There are people who are severely narcissistic. There are people who are mildly narcissistic. There are people who are malignantly narcissistic. There are right. people who are grandiosely narcissistic, vulnerably narcissistic, slightly different treatment approaches. But if we view it on a continuum instead of making it about a diagnosis, I think it would clean up the conversation a lot because what I get a lot of pushback on is, well, you really should shouldn't talk about narcissistic abuse because then what you're doing is you are unfairly labeling and pathologizing someone who has something quote unquote, diagnostically wrong with them. And so that even some people have gone so far as to accuse that to be a form of ableism or try to call narcissism as a form of neurodivergence. I ain't buying it folks, because I know what neurodivergence looks like and it doesn't look like that. And I actually think it's a real discrediting to people who really are in the neurodivergent community. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. it sounds like, it sounds like, so, so question for you is how do you know if your boss Mm-hmm. is uh, is a potentially narcissist mm-hmm. and you should probably get out of the job. Okay. Because I, we all yeah. we all have issue when authorita- authoritative figures come around and go right. to some degree. To some degree. But here's the thing. I think that you, number one is to look at regulation. I think that's a great place to start with a boss, mm. right? How do they show up emotionally? How do they manage anger? Listen, bosses get angry. They do because more often than not, unless they're at the head of the organization, there's someone else they need to answer to. Or this, these profits, if it's their company, you know, someone not doing their job well is really going to cut into their, you know, their life's work, their bottom line, whatever, right? But there's ways to show anger, especially in workplace. I honestly think in all settings, personally, but in the workplace, that the screaming. Mm. the yelling, the degradation and humiliation, the passive aggression, anything that is not a an appropriate show of anger, that's a real mm. sign to get the hell out. You know, it's interesting. It makes me just think of, and I have no idea his diagnosis, but I, I met Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> he was pitching J-Lo on something and I was at our apartment in New York and I, I was like, at the tail end of some meeting where he was pitching a show concept or whatever, and she ended up doing it. But that time when I met him, he was very friendly to me. Fast forward, I was at like an Anna Wintour. By the way, my life sounds more fabulous in hindsight than what it really is. But I met him a second time at like a political fashion gala thing. And I said, oh, I met you, you know, like a month ago. And he was so dismissive and discarding of me. It was almost like I felt like I was like an ant, yep. right? Like, and and I'm a big guy, much yeah. bigger than You're that not, guy. Yeah. Yes, you are. And I just thought that was the weirdest polar opposite presentation of someone behaving towards me. Like, right. It just was like, ugh. Right. And that that's on point, right? It's that th- there are people who will say, gosh, when they're on, they're on. But an an excuse they'll make for the brutal shows of anger are, well, they expect perfection. They hold such a high standard. That's why they're so successful. So, of course, they get angry, to which I say, no. 
no, no, no. Mm. That dysregulation is a no fly. It's unacceptable. And frankly, it's making you sick. Unless you're unless you're a glutton for that kind of thing. And some right. people are. Some people are like, this stuff doesn't bother me. And they're and usually the only people who can say this stuff doesn't bother me are usually people who hold a lot of privilege in that space. Mm. They're protected, they're safe, they know that people will listen to them. So that takes out all women, all ethnic and racial minorities, probably the large host of queer or LGBTQ folks are out. And so who's left who's empowered? Why? guys right you know white straight guys white cis straight guys are the only ones who probably could say i got this i i can i can handle this well good for you but anyone who's not equally empowered in that situation when they're dealing with that kind of rageful almost terrifying tyrant that's that's that to me is the number one thing you want to look for but i also think that you want to there's more subtle patterns that take a minute to should show up in the workplace things like gossip mm. playing favorites creating alliances almost creating this sort of secret network of like sort of favoritism that's never that stuff's never good for an organizational setting that doesn't work a boss who gaslights so you bring a real concern and instead of hearing the concern they make it like well you know what I don't know, no one else seems to be having a problem. So are you sure you're seeing that right? That kind of thing? That's another thing that you're looking for. Mm. But you know, I always, again, I've always said this, you feel it in your body with these folks. It's like everything we've ever learned from the trauma folks applies here. Our bodies are so much more tuned into these narcissistic folks. And I recently had met someone, sort of new person, and it was a narcissistic person. And I feel it in my body. Like it was just sort of that whole day I was off. And I've gotten to the point in this work, I'm like, okay, you know why that happened. And then it's permission to me, like I, I got to dial down A and B, really think about how I want to proceed with this person. Mm. Mm-hmm. And what is kind of the, uh, do you believe that someone's more likely to end up in a narcissistic relationship and even deal with narcissistic abuse if they grew up with a parent who is narcissistic? It definitely ups the odds, you know? So I think that what ends up happening is when a person grows up with a narcissistic parent, it can really do a number on being able to foster and grow your own sense of self, your own identity Mm. of yourself as a separate living human being, which is a really important part of social social and cognitive development, knowing that there's a you separate from everyone else that's unique, right? But a narcissistic parent doesn't let that happen. They really kind of squelch the development of the self in their child. If a person has a really good other parent, that can give them more of a fighting chance, but that it's, it's called the loss of subjectivity. The loss of subjectivity people have when they have a narcissistic parent means that when they're an adult and someone rolls in, whether it's a boss, a partner, mm. a friend, anyone, that person who wants to zoom, hijack them, is there might be almost like less resistance to it because the person might not almost feel that they have the right to resist. Mm. But I think that it becomes, I think that while the probability for sure is higher, that a person who had a narcissistic parent is more likely to end up in an adult onset narcissistic relationship, I think every single human being out there is vulnerable. I think that there are things that up the odds, having history of trauma, up the odds, having history of a narcissistic parent, but surprisingly, being incredibly optimistic, being forgiving, mm. being a rescuer, these things also make you vulnerable to entering a narcissistic relationship because you're giving them second chances. You're giving the benefit of the doubt. You're forgiving them when they do bad things. You're like, I see the good in everyone and that kind of stuff. And what that's going to do is it's, it's basically like that, that it's like mainlining validation into a narcissistic person. Do you think it's pretty common that 
people who are narcissistic, their biggest fear is being exposed. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. In terms of like that runs kind of across the board. It's more that it's it's even less about being exposed because I don't even know that it's the awareness of their ex- what is to be exposed. It's right. the it's the activation of shame, right? So it's it's when the narcissistic person. It's almost as though. All those defenses, the entitlement, the grandiosity, the arrogance, the control, the power, the dominance, the money, the stuff, all of that becomes a suit of armor that's mm. all designed to protect this really fragile core interior that is also not a fully formed person. Right. And if any of that gets seen, it brings up this huge wave of shame. And the shame means they're not, per- this stuff showing up means they're not perfect. The shame means they're not perfect. And the whole survival strategy for the narcissistic person is that they're perfect. They have to be, right? And that's the only way they can survive to offset their own early life stuff or to live up to the hype that their early life gave them. But wouldn't that kind of contradict, in a way, celebrities? Because, you know, I've watched some of your interviews where you talk about how common it is that people who are acting in the public Mm -hmm. eye have these traits isn't there a lot of risk in that too because they're already putting themselves out there or does that they have to put themselves out there to get the validation right see what i'm saying so so there is that there is definitely that and so you'll see though think about it like there's a whole machine the bigger the celebrity the bigger the machine around them right and so the machine is designed to manage all these shame inducing crises I have, you know, I'm sure you you know more, way more than I do about the whole world of the highfalutin celebrity. These are fragile people. Mm. These are really fragile people. At the highest end of celebrity, not always the best put together people. Mm. It's too weird. It's too weird. They're not living as their subjective selves in the world. They're living in this very manufactured identity. There's almost no one they can trust. I don't know that most of them are in possession of who their authentic selves are. They've been playing other people for so long. I think that gets lost in translation. Are there good people out there who are celebrities? I'm sure. Is that the norm? No. Yeah, I found the people that got successful later in life, like in their 20s, seem a lot more developed than the people I worked with who were on Disney or Nickelodeon. Sure, sure. That was like really fragile. And if you met someone who didn't really get known until their 30s, 40s, 50s, each one of those decades is probably going to buy a more anodyne kind of a, you know, a a strength to them where they won't fall apart. And having a very high quality of social support. So the folks who've been in long-term successful marriages, those folks tend to look saner for longer because mm. they had the apparatus to be able to stay in a long-term healthy sustain. It's not even that they, they I'm not, it's they're not gonna, at all meant like, put up I'm with saying less like, of it, even saying. if they have like a long-term marriage and maybe it ends and they get into another healthy relationship, they have a healthy relationship with children, they have a healthy relationship with, um, uh, with with a, a peer group that's been with them, maybe even pre-fame, that's yeah. also a, often quite optimal. But it is, I mean, when you're looking at the the person who's sort of trading the trading for the spouse of the of the year kind of thing every year over year, younger and younger, it is you can definitely see they're on some sort of really bad train. But you know, the culture of celebrity is it is a cult of personality, and so we are turning them into something. Sometimes they're not even those things, but then you have this army of publicists that are making money to keep them in this sort of false self out there. And ultimately, anytime we have to live in our false self, it will take a psychological toll. So, as because you do, uh, was it Red Table? Red Table Talk, yeah. Red Table Talk, and you and you go on so many shows, and your career has taken off publicly, mm-hmm. right? And so, I imagine in that you're also dealing with different types of people, organizations, mm-hmm. companies that you 
weren't dealing with in whether it be no. research, private practice, mm-hmm. writing, what have you. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed that there's an uptick in personalities that you're like, oh. Heck yeah. Really? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the the, <laughs> the kinds of people come across your path. The difference is I know it and I'm also a lot older. You know, I came into this in a much later stage of my life, which is a real blessing yeah. because my still my identity is so strongly founded in being an, an, an academic and being a, a, a clinician and being a writer. And so those are so much more grounded, you know, anonymized spaces in a way. Whereas in this other world, you're like, this, this really is a thing. Like, this really is how people in this industry are. Like, that's not even like a trope mm-hmm. or a construction for a movie. Like, there really are that terrible. There's, But there's, again, the entire media and entertainment industry is designed around narcissism, right? It's around, yeah. around validation. It's around adulation. That's sadly what it is organized around. But here's the thing. I was recently talking with someone and they were talking about like somebody who worked like as a second grade teacher. And that person sounded every bit as bad as Weinstein. Mm. You know, without the assault, obviously, but I mean, was horrific and manipulative and cruel and mean and terrible to the kids. Like the personality was mm. very consistent, you know, again, without the sort of really malevolent acting out and that, that for, you know, Weinstein, his, you know, he was able to completely take his oppressive position right. and, 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 and harm other people with absolutely no sense of remorse. I mean, that's, that feels more in the realm of psychopathy between you and I. But I mean, second grade teachers can be just as awful as these narcissistic folks we're hearing about. So, so what would be the difference between psychopathy? Mm-hmm. Because narcissism. because narcissism, like when someone's, from my experience, when they, you know, when you're saying this is, you know, a diagnosis, this is clear mm-hmm. narcissistic personality disorder, it does feel a little bit like there's some sociopathic they're qualities different. they're definitely different and i think that that's again this is what happens is this this thing called narcissism the umbrella gets bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger it, right that's what I'm you know bigger and bigger and bigger yeah. and bigger and so the um there is a difference and there's actually really interesting theoretical work that's been done it was started as the dark triad the researchers developed it out into a thing called the dark tetrad and it's where psychopathy machiavellianism sadism and narcissism all come together i really like their framing because it gets at exactly what you're talking about sociopaths live in the dark tetrad malignant narcissists dark tetrad psychopaths probably dark tetrad and it's the idea that all these things overlap the exploitation Mm. the kind of glee they get out of causing harm to other people like getting revenge or something like that or even setting up the revenge the lack of empathy the grandiosity and then the callousness all of that kind of hangs together as one style but if we were to look at the differences between the two narcissistic people are insecure that Mm. is a core issue for them Mm. there it is narcissism is compensatory meaning that the person is making up for something that ain't psychopathy they are not insecure nor are they anxious narcissistic people are actually quite anxious they care very much what people think about them that's why they're always trying to do bigger better more look at me aren't i great right well that's that's being driven by anxiety for a psychopathic person, it's very calculated. They want power, pleasure, or profit, maybe all three, definitely not in that order, but they want them. And that's what they're going to get. And they're going to get it any way they need. It's not about quelling anxiety for them. That's why they're able to engage mm. in such heinous 
horrific behaviors without any conscience whatsoever. Mm. So that, you know what I'm saying? So that lack of conscience, that lack of remorse, which is actually mercifully a very rare quality. Human beings do have autonomic nervous systems and nervous systems at large that are designed to kind of know right from wrong. We're a social species. Right. So psychopathy is actually quite an outlier within the species 1%, whereas narcissism, even at a diagnostic level, we're going to be seeing closer to 3 to 6%. Yeah, I was working with this woman who... Um whose ex, you know, kind of matched a lot of the criteria mm -hmm. for, for a narcissist. And she said that he described every one of his past relationships positively. And after they broke up, she did some research and reached out and they were actual total disasters, disasters, mm -hmm. messes. But what he presented to her was amazing qualities, how much he had helped his exes with their careers. What is that? Like, how, so that I, makes all the sense in the world. So narcissistic people uh, have something we call inaccurate self-appraisal, which is it's not we, we too much of the conversations about self-esteem and self-appraisal is actually the money shot to me mm. because self-appraisal is how accurately one is able to sort of dig into strengths and weaknesses. Right. So my ability to say not a very good cook, but I'm mediocre. I'm very, very sweet. I, but I am also very solitary. Like I'm able to self-appraise that. It's, it's a critical analysis of self that's accurate, right? Mm. The narcissistic person has zero command of that. They cannot accurately self-appraise themselves. What they do though, is they tend to view themselves in a better light than they actually are. Again, that's part of that grandiosity. So they, narcissistic people generally almost always rate themselves as more empathic than other people. So they right. think of themselves as humanitarian, empathic, great people, great to their partners, just yeah. great. That's how they see themselves. So that's why they're often thrown off when a partner says, you're the worst person ever. They're like, what are you talking I know, about? But my, mine got so bad and I don't even know how I got sucked into it. We're literally, I was in Sao Paulo, Brazil on the phone with Dr. Phil for like a few hours, have, trying to get advice from him because I felt so crazy, right? Like I felt crazy. I talked to him about the photo. I talked to him about just the gaslighting and all of that. And, and he even helped me draft a, a text for, to, for the breakup. I felt so, like, it was almost like, and what I found is when I can talk to him, like, hey, I think you need to go to therapy. And he was like, you're the narcissistic one. And I was like, and, I'll, you know, I, I hear someone that I'm with that I really cared for. And I start, I don't know if this is common where you start to, and I don't believe it today. I think we all have traits to some degree, but we're, Anything I would say, he would say I was. Yep. And I felt crazy. This projection. There was no ability to be, no. let me think about, the, uh, nope. it, it just felt kind of crazy. It's again, it's that, in fact, in the research is a uh, research on and, and clinical work on mentalization. And mentalization is that capacity to sort of create a mental model where you're aware of how your behavior is affecting someone else. And also uh, thinking about how another person is doing, feeling it's, 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 a, it's, part, it's in part it's empathy, but, but it's also partly self-appraisal. That mentalization capacity is gone and they don't have it. So and how so, do you, so I imagine people reach out to you today. Mm -hmm. I know, I'm, I'm guessing for a fact, this is me fortune telling, that you're getting, I'm guessing more women than men who reach out, who say, I'm in yeah. a relationship yeah. with what you're describing. Yep. I can't get out. Yep. I have tried to get out. Yep. I go to therapy. My friends are telling me this person's horrible for mm -hmm. me. I know they're horrible for me, but I can't get out. Yep. 
How do you help them? So I, my practice, I don't take new clients, but we, I actually have a healing program, like an online program on these issues. But how do I help them? Because how, community is so you know, important. You know, yes, the community is so important. But let's say I'm working with them as someone as an individual client. Here's the thing. Number one. I don't believe that the only way to healing is getting out because I realize that that's an option not mm. available to many, many people. Mm. And I think that if we only link healing to getting out, we have actually created a greater sense of helplessness and hopelessness. Mm. And then many people who stay, and everyone I know, everyone I know, maintains at least one significant narcissistic relationship. It could be a parent, mm. it could be a sibling, they may keep showing up at their job, it could be a partner. Right. And so I think yeah, I think we often think of it in the intimate relational space, but we forget, okay, sure, you get a divorce, you're still dealing with the invalidating mother or father or whomever, right? So I always tell folks, this it's not the only path forward. But what I'm not going to let you do is live in the space of this can change, it's not going to change. Mm -hmm. So this is the weather. It's almost like you've moved to Alaska and you're saying, I'm waiting for that warm day in February. I'm like, this is not an option. Okay, it is going to be freezing cold all month. So this is what you, this is how it's going to be, and you kind of know that because you've been living this reality. But the difference is you were living in this false hope, mm. and that's a dangerous place. So this is all what we call radical acceptance. So it's working with folks on not not only what I learned about the course of their relationship and their history and the other relationships they've had like this and their family of origin, but showing a person these are the patterns. It is not going to change. This is what you can realistically expect is going to happen in this relationship. And, and, th and then we're going to start from there. Mm. And slowly but surely help the person see that that other person's behavior is not about them. Because a lot of people think if I was better, if I was different, if I was hotter, if I was younger, if I had more money, they would treat me differently. I'm like, no, they wouldn't. Maybe for a minute, because you'd be a new source of supply. But once they ran through your money mm -hmm. or were done having sex with you or found something new, they were going to treat that person as bad. Any, everyone's thinking, oh, I don't want the next person to get the better version of them. I'm like, there is no better version. This is it. Them, version 1.0. It yeah. doesn't upgrade. And so if people can remember that this is not going to change, not for you, not for anyone, and not blame yourself for their behavior, then people sort of start getting a little bit more clear-headed. This is where we go back to David Kessler's work. There's a mountain of grief that follows that recognition. Mm. For a lot of people will say that I came in, I felt hopeful, I'm going to talk to you. Then they go off this, the, you know, the cliff. They're like, it was the worst grief because this is the thing they've been trying to keep held back. Like, is it, there's got to be hope. Dr. Rami's going to tell me, I'm, I'm telling you, there's hope for you. There's nothing but endless hope for you to thrive, to flourish. There's no hope this hit, that their behavior is going to change. So armed with that knowledge, most people go through a crash of grief and that's mm. great. You just ride that wave. I tell people, we're going to stay in grief as long as you need to. And then slowly starts the building up and it's building up social supports. It's slowly giving permission to the pieces of their identity, getting to know who they themselves are, cleaning up who their social world is. Once you let one narcissist in, it's like flies. You're going to get more. So you're going to have to start slowly saying, this is not a healthy person for me. This is not a healthy person for me. It doesn't mean you're blocking and deleting them all from your phone. It means you're becoming discerning in how you talk with them. Even a spouse, even a partner where you start to learn like, this partner of mine's on a need to know basis. They don't need to know the deep, they're not gonna hear my feelings. Mm. They're not gonna get the deep stuff from me because all they do is abuse it. I'm gonna go into therapy. I'm going to join a support group. I'm gonna cultivate my friendships. I'm gonna take the deep stuff of me 
to an audience or to people who can listen to it. But I'm not bringing that into my relationship. I'm sticking to the weather. Mm. And that's how you keep it going. And I guess the confusion, and and a lot of people probably reach out to and say, is he a narcissist? Does he have narcissists? Because it's so confusing. And a lot of those people won't go to therapy. The narcissistic people will not go to therapy, no. And it is confusing. And that's the other thing is to normalize the confusion. It's very confusing when you've just had the best weekend and dinner's out and the best sex. And on Tuesday, you're dealing with someone where you're like, I am in a lifetime movie. Like, I need to get out of this relationship. And that rinse, rinse, lather, or lather, rinse, repeat. You just keep going through it, going through it. And I say... As much as it feels con- inconsistent, it is consistent. Let's lay this out. Mm. And then when they start to see the signal and the noise, then they realize that there is a pattern to this. And and, and some people even say, like, it's it's I never like to liken what's happening to people in these relationships as addiction because I don't think it, I think people don't know what they're dealing with. Once they know what they're dealing with, they will say, you know what? I did start noticing that on the bad days, I knew at some point we're going to get to a good day. But on the good days, I was getting really anxious about the bad days, which I knew were inevitable. So it's mm. it's all constant discomfort. And I said that's the only constant here. You're that walking on eggshells is an apropos, you know, kind of a description because that's what it is. I'm curious what, in terms of like, and this is. A totally different topic but like law of attraction mm. like attracting in life just in general do you believe in that zero percent zero percent not even like a tenth of a percent i'll tell you why it ends up blaming survivors of these relationships in the biggest way i think people don't know what the hell this is now some people will say out there i fall for the the pretty guy i fall for the gorgeous girl mm-hmm. um i'll say okay you're, first of all, I'm not going to ever pathologize someone for wanting to be with someone beautiful. Like that's I, that's that's anthropological shit. Then, mm-hmm. right? Like that's this who we are. We're we're drawn to that which we think is beautiful. However, I have to then t- let people know you can go deeper than that. And then we do. We unpack what the trauma bond is. We we figure. We we I teach people all this, and they say, I see what I'm doing, and they'll even say. You know, it's interesting. Without the excitement, this is a whole different space. And I'm all in a a little way, feel like I'm lacking, right? Mm. There's something missing. And then we'll talk about how that relates oftentimes to early childhood experiences. But I really don't hold to that one bit because I think that for many, I've worked with, I've worked with clients in 50 year narcissistic relationship clients in their seventies and eighties who have said to me, I just didn't, I, I didn't get any of this. And then duty, obligation, need, yeah. safety, all weighed in as to why they stayed. This was nothing about what they were putting out in the world. It was just not knowing. But I, I'm saying in general, even career-wise, like philosophy-wise, do you believe in this stuff? No. Mm-mm. So what do you believe spiritually? So I was raised in a Hindu family and I... um. And for me, it's like, you know, Hinduism is not as much of an organized religion for me, but, uh, you know, some guiding principles for me. I'm a big, and it's almost like I'm the, I'm the person who takes sort of the, the Eastern philosophy I was re- raised on in Hinduism and humanistic philosophy as Allah, like people like Carl Rogers, with a sprinkle of existential folks like Rollo May and Frankel and folks like that. And when you put all that into a blender, I believe that within every human being exists the divine. Mm. And that's what we hold in Hinduism. Within all of us exists that the divine. And in fact, the belief in Hinduism is that the, the holiest spirits come down and possess human form and that we all contain that within us. And in that divinity in every human being has been interrupted 
by the conditions around us. Mm -hmm. And that could be the way we were parented. It could be the way others in the family treated the child. It could be trauma. It could be societal issues, discrimination, racism, inequality, oppression, pick an ism. Those things destroy, and people not being regarded and seen. I'm a big believer that when a human being is recognized and seen and held and loved, we will release a potential in every one of them that is completely unstoppable. But that is not about just the person themselves. They have to be surrounded by those conditions. Mm. And the absence of being surrounded by those conditions, this is why we're in the mess we're in right now. Because most people do not know how to raise a child. Most mm. people don't. Not some, most. Our education systems do not know how to work with non-traditional learners. We leave a lot of kids behind, particularly boys. We do not know how to be with boys and men and cultivate a sense of safety within themselves. So what do they do? They're lashing out at everybody else. We do not know how to how to love without it being a game. Like I don't want to. I don't want this person to get something over on me. I don't want them to get too mm. comfortable with me. Why not? Right. That's my belief system, and I've seen it happen. And I've seen people who are broken, who under the 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 warmth of love, whether from a therapist, whether from a community, true non controlling, non agendaed love remarkable things can happen for a human being and nobody's getting it. Nobody. Mm. The, the, the world around us is starving to death in the need for this. And they're turning to technology and apps and social media and that we need community and we need healthy community and it's gone. So talk to me about the community. So someone's, someone I'm sure is listening to our conversation and is thinking, okay, I need more information about mm -hmm. this. I want to be a part of a community. Mm -hmm. I want to, want to figure out a way to mm -hmm. change mm -hmm. where can they go well i mean for in in the work i do like i what we know is that when people are going through narcissistic relationships they need information so that they can break out of a cycle of self-blame go to my youtube video and now it's thousands of videos we post every day every if, day and and if you don't if you don't like what we got up there send drop us a line we'll probably you'll get into our pre-production schedule team will talk about it we'll make a video you know it's it, not okay? it's not uh it's so funny i i lately i've gotten a lot not a lot but I, i'll get people going because i'm a life coach i didn't really want to be a life coach but i became a life coach as soon as i started writing books and everything and people will be like that doesn't sound very coach like or that you know that they'll hold me to some standard as if i'm supposed to levitate in spirituality at all that all the time which i don't with my clients i don't as a boss like i'm no different than them but i I can tell you there is so much shitty YouTube videos out there on personality disorders. <laughs> it is baffling to me because anyone can put out content and that's why I like and enjoy your content you. so much because it just, you get the feeling it's right. You get the feeling you've done the research. You get the feeling yeah. that you, you aren't even just looking at a board just with uh, what you need to say, it feels like you're coming from experience, but yep. there it's difficult because, because on one hand there's, it's great that there's technology, you get access to information yes, like you great. have. Yes. I but agree. On the other hand, yeah. you can end up in a rabbit hole. You can end up in a rabbit hole. And I think that there's no technology in the world that's ever going to fully be that substitute for being seen being recognized, being held, being witnessed, right? And 
what I do believe and I hope to you know, try to do, for example, through platforms like YouTube is to say, I don't think people even know that that's something that they need and that they deserve. Like that that's and not and it's not that when I say deserve, it's every human being on the planet. It's not like a selected group. All people need this. And so that 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 your your individual self, your me as it were, deserves to be out and we need it to be out in the world so we can mm. experience all these different people. The other thing we have is for people who are healing from narcissistic abuse and want to do the deeper dive, I have a monthly subscription program where every month we have a workshop, we have a Q&A session, we have three weekly journal prompts. We Slow have down on that. I want to hear more about it. <laughs> okay. So, so, so it's... For survivors. So for someone that's surviving... Going and, through it. Or going through it, mm -hmm. whether they're stayed in it or yep. it's recent. So if they're a part of the monthly mm -hmm. plan, like game plan mm -hmm. it in the 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 first thing is what they get a month a workshop every month and the topic shifts every month how does the workshop topic. work it's me for an hour and a half um it's just supposed to be an hour but i talk too much so is it live it's, it's, kind of it's, like it's in real time but it gets it you know since not everyone can make it we it's it's if you're in the community it's recorded and then it's there for you to go to at a mm. later date and and that's very informational. And it's also sort of plugged into sort of what's happening into narcissism in, around narcissism and narcissistic relationships at that point in time. But it's very much focused on a singular topic. May was mental health month. So we were talking a lot about the mental health fallout that survivors of narcissistic abuse experience. That was the workshop. Okay. Then there's a Q&A session. And in the Q&A session, people submit questions ahead of time. So I can, here's the thing, Mike, I don't want it always to be from the hip. I want to research answers. Like, so mm -hmm. sometimes three people will ask a question. I'm like, this is good. I'm going to go to the literature. It's to your point. It's like anyone can say anything. I'd really always, always want to make sure I have best practices and an evidence base behind my back. But during the question and answer, they also type questions in. And, it, you know, every third question or so, fourth question, I'll take a break and grab something from the group. And we'll do that. And that gets an hour and a half each month. We also use journaling and we have video journal prompts. So it's not just like reading journal prompts, but we sort of explicating why this is even a prompt right. and people can, you know, do them, not do them. They're there just to have, I'm a, I, I like between sessions work. You know, I, I think that that stuff becomes important that the, let's say you're in ther traditional talk therapy, an hour in a room. Great. But what you do in between those hours, the writing yeah. the reflection, and these are questions that are meant to push people and you know, they don't have to do them all, but they're all, all available to folks. We have a guided meditation each month that often links to that topic and something that people can hold on to use throughout the month. And then I actually think probably the most important part of our program is a a carefully curated community platform meaning I was, say, I was hoping it is, to hear that. Yes, yeah. that's what it is. And that's why actually we developed this in the first place. Mm -hmm. People there have been survivor Facebook groups and survivor groups in other places. The problem is you cannot safeguard those spaces mm -hmm. in the same way. People are constantly encroaching and I am singularly focused or you'll get on the protecting. group dominator who's yeah, you putting get the, out exactly. 15 post a day or, or or selling services right. or selling nonsense and right. and so i've got this great team that you know three women who work with me and they're amazing because they keep very different hours so we're kind of we have sort of 24-hour moderation because someone's always awake on the team and right. so the, the it's constantly being watched. There's constantly my team going in there making sure there's nothing odd going on. We have we have reporting mechanisms, but you have to be in the program to get in. So it's like it's a lot of hoop jumping, and we have no problem. We're like the most 
aggressive bouncers in the world. We see someone doing something like, here's your money back and get the hell away from And how does someone join this? So you just go to my website, which is drromany.com and you can find the link there and you can try it. And it's the great thing about it is if you do it for a month, you're like, I don't like this and just drop and you get, that's it. Yeah, I think it's so important to be a part of this community you have because when somebody is going through it, uh, if you go to friends, every friend gives a different piece of advice. Some are even going to give you advice on how to get them back or win them over. If you just go to therapy, that's isolated and it's not in real time. And there's the power of understanding other people are going through the exact same thing. And you're able to offer some wisdom and see yourself. And it's just powerful, it's powerful to be a part of that. And I also think that it becomes its own, you know, if you, I don't want to say intervention, but support, because I think a lot of the people in the community group are saying like, whoa, I am being like my sharing my story in this safe space has helped someone else. Yeah. It's giving them a substantiation of their power in the world, their sense of self. They've been silenced for so long. And so mm. I have to tell you what they share in there is amazing. It is, it's thoughtful, it's wise, it's loving. These are deeply empathic, kind people who ended up in bad places and were treated badly. Yeah. So it's really, it's, a, it's an amazing group of people. I've had a lot of uh, guests on the podcast come back and um, talk to our clinical team here. I know your schedule is crazy. But if you're ever in the neighborhood Absolutely. on certain days, it would be great because we'll have you come in, you do a training, you also let them know about, you know, the community, what you have. So it's a resource for us because, you know, we have thousands of people that we help and um, so many people that call us asking for help. And I mean, we've since since David came on my podcast and I mean, we've, we've sent so many people who are now part of his community for grief, you know, That's and I great. think, and he's the best and you're, what you're dealing with is so powerful and important. And so I would love for more people to know about it. And so the best way is Dr. Romani, we spell it D-O-C-T-O-R dash R-A-M-A-N-I. I love how you spelled doctor out. Like that yeah, was going to be well, the difficult Dr. part. Rom- even in 2010, when I tried to get the damn website, Dr. Romani was already gone. It was already taken yeah, off. So I was like, yeah. So that's, that's how we got to Dr. And dash you, I mean, the reality is anyone can just literally go on YouTube and look up narcissistic yeah, personality up, disorder and they're going to find they're you. They're going to find me. That's, that's a, the beauty of doing well on YouTube is that you, you become optimized in, in and and they can way. check you yeah. out on red table yeah, and anything else you can and i also have a podcast called navigating narcissism what's so great about this podcast and so many wonderful things about it is it's it's interviews with people who've gone through it people who are really really famous and well known mm. and people who you've never heard of and what you see is that it doesn't matter if you're a huge celebrity or your story it was a huge story in the press or it's probably your next door neighbor or your, it sounds like your story, how similar all of this is. So yeah. amazing guests, amazing conversations and great takeaways and sort of like how to translate what you just heard into your own life. So that's called Navigating Narcissism and you can listen and sub- subscribe wherever it is you get your podcasts from. Awesome. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for thank joining you, me. Sorry, it's my the, pleasure. the roadmap of getting here. And I now, I got, now I know where you live, so now you better I know watch where I out. Live. Until next time, <laughs> keep it magical.